Welcome to the Chronify podcast. I am Ben Miller, and today I'm sitting down with Lindsay Bryan Podvin, who is actually the first financial therapist in the state of Michigan. Financial therapy is her trade, but she's also got a few other things in the hopper, and I'm excited to dive into the number of things that she's involved in, some pretty exciting things that are just about to be unleashed as well. And so, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the pod. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Of course. We spoke uh, a few weeks ago now, I guess. And I was just struck by, you know, how flexible your approach is to this entire space. And I suppose being a therapist, you have to, like, that's a big part of the job description. But just the way that you approach your week in particular, I think is really interesting. You know, as somebody who's obviously built a business around how valuable I think time is, I'd love to jump in by just exploring, you know, how do you structure your weeks, Lindsay? Ooh, good question. Well, at the the time of this conversation, I'm in the process of restructuring my week. So for about the past two years, I have done my clinical work. So I've seen patients or clients in my therapy practice for three days a week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays. And then I've bookended my weeks with more content creation, with writing, podcasting, guesting on events like this, and creating content. And it really helped me to scratch my itch of being a little bit more creative. As a therapist, there's a lot of work that kind of goes on underneath the scenes, but we don't often get the opportunity to be pretty creative as an outlet in that profession. Unless you're like an art therapist or dance therapist or music therapist, of which (laughs) I am none. I'm a financial therapist, so there's not a lot of that happening. So I, I kind of bookended my weeks with a bit of creativity. And one of those days ended up almost just organically being filled with consulting other therapists in private practice around how to build sustainable and profitable private practices. In the field of therapy, a lot of us are undercharging and overworking and we're bleeding hearts and we're trying to do all the things and it leads to burnout and potentially resentment. And Mm. over time, I think when you and I caught up, we had just missed each other at FinCon and FinCon really reaffirmed for me how important it was to have financial anxiety and money shame information in the general public's knowledge or awareness. I presented Mm -hmm. on why it's so important for personal finance creators to have an understanding of financial anxiety. I got some beautiful feedback about how important it was and how useful it was. And it was this light bulb moment of, I've been doing all of this amazing work to toot my own horn in these (laughs) one-on-one sessions, but wouldn't it be great to bring my knowledge of shame-free financial therapy with a specialization in money shame and money anxiety to people in the personal finance industry or to human resources where they're working really hard to create financial wellness programs to universities, to healthcare systems, et cetera. So I'm in the infancy stage of now shifting my week to two days a week of clients and opening up that space to be three days a week of more content creation, hopefully speaking engagements and collaboration and decommissioning coaching other therapists on the business side of their business. Wow. I mean, there's a lot in there that I want to dive into. Yeah. Uh, but first off the bat, I'm intrigued by the the qualifier shame-free. And so what is wrong with the way that other people are doing therapy? Like, how do we get to a place where we need to say, oh no, I'm a shame-free financial therapist? What's the backdrop there? Good question. My hope is that there are not therapists out there that are shaming and blaming their clients. That would be my hope. Uh However, 
From the personal finance industry, a lot of my clients have been burned by feeling like whether it was a personal finance book or a certified financial planner that they worked with, they feel embarrassed about what they have done historically with money or what they're planning on doing. And that shame, you shouldn't go drink lattes, what's wrong with you for not having a 401k, how come you don't have an emergency fund, that kind of judgmental language and tone or even sense can totally shut down a person from healthily engaging with their money in the future. And you and I both know the power of money when we can be in control of it versus when money's in control of us. And so for me, the shame-free therapy aspect is less about shading my fellow therapists and much more (laughs) about signaling to potential clients that I'm not here to judge you for whatever it is that you bring into the therapeutic space. I think that's powerful and well said. I think people, for whatever reason, whether it's some kind of a stigma or whether it's some kind of a a misapprehension about what therapy even is, they can come in with these preconceptions where it's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, geez, I'm going to be so embarrassed. How am I going to, you know, open the kimono, so to speak, for this type of an operation when I'm not even willing to talk to my best friends about it? Like there can be a lot of kind of deep seated uh, reservations around communicating to this to anybody. And so then walking into some strange office who professes to be an expert can be a pretty intimidating experience for folks. But I like that from the perspective of it just being a, a rebrand, if you will, or like a, a different way of communicating what you're up to is like, listen, right out of the gate, we are not here to judge you. We are here to take where you are and help you make the best of it, you know, wherever that may be, because spoiler alert, everybody's messed it up somewhere. And everyone will continue to make mistakes. That's the other piece is even when you learn things about money and even when you learn things about yourself, it doesn't mean you're going to get from where you are now to financial independence or early retirement or whatever your financial goals are without making some mistakes along the way. So I really appreciate you saying that. Another thing that I was intrigued by in, uh, in your opening was just the intentionality. I've met very few people who have been so thoughtful about the way that they structure their time. We all know we should do it. We all know we should take a look at like, okay, how am I spending my days, my weeks, my months, like that type of thing. It sounds like you've taken a properly systematic approach and gone, okay, this is the right share of my week to devote to this endeavor. This is the right share to open up for, I don't know what yet, but you know, we'll see what comes in. I'm curious, you know, How did you come to a point where you determined that, okay, this part of my life I need to wind down and then I'm going to create space for something else? How did you get that signal? Like most people, it kind of happened to me. I didn't, I was not this amazing Zen person who color coded her calendar and was like, all right, I'm just going to make it work for me. I was a workaholic and recovering perfectionist. Um, in my first job before I went into private practice, my first job as a clinical social worker, I was doing what a lot of us do in any job, right? New, super excited, hit the ground running, working a lot being underpaid. That's another story for a different time. Uh And realize the impact of overworking and under-earning on my health. I developed chronic insomnia for the first time in my life. I'd always pride myself on being an amazing sleeper. The (laughs) mental health issues that I had that were previously really well-managed came roaring back. 
And I really experienced firsthand how we have to set those boundaries. Otherwise, our body will literally respond to it. And so as I moved, you know, it was going to be almost a decade until I went into private practice after that first job. But when I got into private practice, I tried to mimic my old work schedule, my old 40-hour work week. But as you know, being a business owner is very different than being an employee and saying, oh, I'm going to see the exact same number of clients, but now I'm also in charge of billing, of marketing, of all the administrative tasks. That really quickly became apparent to me that I could not do that. And so Mm. then it became this game of what can I dial down? What can I consolidate? The big shift to my schedule actually came when I was writing my book. I was working full time in private practice, trying to write my book in like two hour chunks in between clients. And for anybody who has had that creative outlet, you know that that just is not a great way to create meaningful work. So I consolidated my work days from five to four. So I moved all my clients from five days a week into four and set aside Mondays as just writing days. And I did that telling myself, I'll just do that while I work on my book. And then I realized like, oh, my body really likes this. My brain really (laughs) likes having a full day of creativity and then having other days for therapeutic work. And then, you know, over time, that number has just kind of changed for where I'm at in my business, where I'm at energetically, physically, what's going on in my life. But what moving my clients from five days to four did, Ben, was show me instead of like, a lot of us spend a lot of time in our heads, like, can I do this? What's going to happen? Are people going to be mad? Will my business go under? All those questions. What it did was show me most people are amenable to moving the day of the week that they see you. My income wasn't impacted. My business was not impacted in a negative way. And if anything, it made me realize like, oh, turns out when I'm well rested, when I'm well taken care of, when I have time to nurture my own self, I'm a better therapist for my clients. And hmm, like, don't I tell them all the time the importance of self-care and boundaries? So it was, it was more of doing and then realizing how beneficial it was for me. I see. I mean, there's, there's so much, so much in there. I think it's one, you know, I mean, how are you supposed to fill up other people's cups when you are not filling up your own? It's something that, you know, is especially obvious. I feel like to parents where it's just like, you can, for the first year, just white knuckle it and go like, okay, well, baby's going to get everything. And that's just the way the world works. But then you realize, okay, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you got to take care of yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be a horrible parent tomorrow. And so it doesn't matter how good you are today because you just got to keep the sustainable engine rolling. I love the intentionality and something that I aspire to. And honestly, I've tried some experimentation lately with like how my calendar should work, you know, based Mm -hmm. on the nature of my life, which is as yours is, you know, ever shifting, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, okay, well, I no longer need to recruit this person. And now I've got access to their labor. And so I can take this day back from recruiting and plow it into the product or whatever it may be. But I'm finding myself constantly being buffeted by these opportunities or things that look like emergencies. It'll be like, okay, Tuesday through Thursday, these are the days I'm doing my calls this week. And then it'll be like some business deal or something like that. That's like, they can only meet on Friday. And otherwise, it's going to be until February. And so it's just like, gosh, I know I said I wasn't going to do this on Friday. So how do you handle those, those like unstoppable force meets immovable object type of things? Well, I'm human. So I (laughs) I make mistakes. My calendar in January is vastly different than my calendar in December. 
in January, I have it structured in a way that really works for me. The good thing is that I've been doing this for so long that I'm really clear with folks. I can only do things like this, like a podcast interview on the days where I'm not seeing clients. I'm not going to cancel my clients to do something like this. That's a boundary that feels best for me. Right. And there are times where I'm like, technically, I like to clock out at five o'clock, but I have a call with somebody who's on the Pacific coast. I'm East coast. I'll kind of let it slide. And what happens Mm -hmm. is that come the end of the year, those all let it slides suddenly make your calendar look like a mess. So I am committing to you myself and whomever's listening to this podcast. (laughs) I found this concept of untouchable days. It's floating around on Harvard Business Review, and I will find the name of the author who penned them, but I did not. But he works for himself. And what he does is he has one untouchable day per week. Monday through Friday on his calendar where nothing can go in there except for his own creative work, whether that's writing, recording, podcasts, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so then he has the rest of the days of the week for meetings and things like that. And his rule is that if one of those immovable things lands on an untouchable day, he then has to move that untouchable day somewhere else by the end of the week. So then he has to cancel all the other appointments on those other days. Mm, So I'm not quite that ambitious, but I did go through all 12 months of 2023 and put one untouchable day per month in my calendar. And I'm going to experiment with that and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I love, I mean, there, there was a, a slight, a small sleight of hand that happened early on in, in what you just said, which I think is, is brilliant in the sense that it's, it's the same way that I, well, this is going to sound dumb, but like it's the same way that I look at things. It's like, I was asking you, how do you handle exceptions? And the way you answered was, well, I'm human, so I make mistakes. And so there was like this conflation of like (laughs) exceptions with mistakes, but that's exactly like, I don't think that's wrong, at least in my own, the Mm -hmm. way that I see things, because I've seen it before. It's like Tuesday is my untouchable day. I will not put anything there. And then it's like that unstoppable force. So I put one little half hour after lunch because I'm like, I'm going to be stepping off for lunch anyways. I'm not going to be, you know, corrupting my deep work time. And then what happens? Well, I see that there was something there. And so I put another one right after it. And by the time the Tuesday shows up, it's like Mm -hmm. four hours of calls. And so I love that you mentioned mistakes because like, that's what makes us human. Sure, it might seem like a bug rather than a feature, but the reality is we can pretend all we want that we can, you know, exercise discretion and be big boys and girls and and just like handle it. But like Mm -hmm. the reality is sometimes you have to just appreciate the fact that you're fallible. If you make this, you know, compromise or exception here, you better set up a system so that you don't betray your original intentions. And so I just wanted to double click on that because I thought it was, (laughs) I thought it was cool how that, that was kind of where your head went with it. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because as I heard you talking, I was also thinking of the product that you developed. And it's very similar in that way, in that, you know, you can absolutely have these things that come up and build in a, a little splurge bucket that you can use right now. And what that means is there may be a change in the future. But I think where you and I in past conversation really aligned was that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think so often in the finance space, in the fire space, in the entrepreneurial space, Mm -hmm. it is you wake up at 5 a.m. every day, you grind, you write 3,000 words, you do the post, you, you know, auto schedule it to a million places, you don't sleep. And it's like, that's also not living. So, you know, this untouchable day, if you make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. But I like having these guardrails on it to where you still give yourself permission to take back that time. And to me, 
just like if we're thinking about money, I'd rather have some money saved than no money saved. I'd rather have a half day to myself than no day to myself for this untouchable day or this creative time. I think that's a great reminder for, like you said, many domains in life. You know, just because you break one small part of something doesn't mean that, well, the whole thing's ruined because it's now imperfect. Like we can still pick up the pieces and maintain what's left. It doesn't have to be this all, you know, binary type of thought. I'm curious, I want to get a little bit more at the like the origin story here. How does one decide to become the first financial therapist in Michigan? Mm. Like it's fascinating because it's it's a nation discipline, but Michigan's also a pretty big state. And so I'm curious to know, like, what made you plant your flag as like, you know what, I'm the right person for this, I'm going to go do it. Yeah, well, going back to that first job where I was getting sick and working hard and doing work that I felt was very meaningful. I turned to personal finance books like many people do. This was in the days mm-hmm. where podcasts were new though, Ben. And so I was literally going to the library and like checking out stacks <laughs> and stacks of books because again, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'll figure it out kind of person, give me the information, I'll make it work. So mm-hmm. in my first job there, when I got my paycheck, I was earning less than I did as a waitress. And I had this mm. immense shame of here I am, I went to grad school, I come from financial privilege, I did not graduate with any debt. And mm-hmm. still, you can only stretch your money so far. So mm-hmm. those personal finance books were helpful in that they gave me some ideas on what to do. And, you know, I dialed down my spending as best I could. I shopped at Aldi and Trader Joe's and used coupons. And I started doing secret shopping so I could go out to dinner and like still <laughs> have a little bit of fun. But I was, you know, scraping by. I was I was living as close to paycheck to paycheck as possible while trying to be quote unquote good, whatever that meant. And a year into that job, I did all the research on how to negotiate a raise. And I sat down for my performance review, very confident about the changes that I made in the organization, the work that I'd done, how I never called off sick, blah, 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 name all the things. And I asked for my raise and I was told, oh, Lindsay, we can't give you a raise. You should really be grateful to have a job in this economy. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And, And my story isn't uncommon, right? And I share it because people can probably hear bits and pieces of themselves or a loved one in that story. We are often told that what we have is as good as it gets. We should be Mm. grateful. We should be thankful to have more than others do. And yet I was like, I am literally sick. I've developed Mm -hmm. chronic insomnia. I'm getting colds and flus left and right. My anxiety and depression is going bananas. I literally can't. This was pre-Uber days, but I couldn't drive an Uber. It wouldn't have been safe for Mm -hmm. me. I couldn't go back and do some waitressing on the weekends. I literally was not able to do the things to generate more income. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, I realized like I got to find a better paying job. And so on the walk back to my desk, I could feel it in my body. This is it. I got to go. And so I found a job that paid better. And as soon as that paycheck started coming in, it was like, oh, now I can actually do some of those things that those personal finance people told me to do. This Mm. feels much better. And it was this moment of realizing my own lived experience. And also, remember, I'm a therapist on the other side of my desk or of the couch or wherever I was sitting that day were clients who were coming to me with anxiety and depression concerns. And my training, when they said, geez, I'm really stressed out about money, my training was such that I was supposed to give them resources. I was supposed to say, here's the utility company emergency line. They won't shut off your power. Or here's somewhere you can go to refinance your credit. Not knowing that that was good or not good advice. Mm -hmm. I just felt like there is such a gap here and that I'm helping people with 
their mental health, but I can't help them with one of the biggest parts of their life. And Mm -hmm. I just experienced this very real thing where having more money helps you to manage more money. And I just thought, Mm -hmm. man, we got to do something here. And so I kept searching for something that would marry the two in a way where I would stay within my scope. I didn't want to go and become a financial planner. I didn't want to become an advisor. I didn't want to become a broker. I really wanted to stay in my lane of the therapeutic work. And eventually I found the Financial Therapy Association. I think I was going through this, how do I do this? How do I make this work? question when the organization was founded. And that's why I'm kind of on the floor here is that they were starting right as I was ready to find additional training. And so then I got trained in financial social work and then financial therapy and fast forward. Now I work for myself (laughs) and have a private practice and do consulting and speaking on the side. I love it because it sounds like, again, theme here of intentionality, but like what you're really addressing here is you're treating the whole patient. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about financial therapy as a discipline is like, sure, I'll tell you all these kinds of things about the way you should think about these thought patterns or this kind of dynamic within your life or whatever it is. But as soon as you put a dollar sign in front of it, I got to kind of tap out. Exactly. Exactly. That's a pretty tough. Exactly. I mean, it's crazy because it's like you're fighting with one hand tied behind your back. You know, like this is the biggest thing that contributes to divorce a lot of the time, things that contributes to absenteeism at work. I mean, just a litany of issues stem from finances. And so if it's like you have to handle somebody's diet, but you're not allowed to say anything about sugar, then it's just like, how are you going to do your job without being able to actually address a big sector of what could be the problem? Um, And so I don't know, I I love that, that it sprang from a need that you yourself had actually had within your life to understand these things, you saw the power of it, and you saw what it could do for your clientele, because you pointed it out earlier in the episode that a lot of people go into therapeutic practice because they're people who want to actually help people. And so because of that, there can be these supply demand dynamics that make it so that maybe these folks aren't compensated the way that you would hope for doing things that are shocker actually useful. Right. And right. so it can make it a tough place to to scratch out a living. And and I think I love that, you know, what you did there is you, is you kind of reframed things from a, a fear mindset, which is kind of the basis of the question, like, how did you have the courage to, you know, start your own financial therapy practice, the first one in Michigan? And you phrased it more as like, kind of like, a well, as I saw it, I didn't really have a choice. You know, like this was something <laughs> yeah. that was necessary think- to... I think as entrepreneurs, we all have to have some sort of blind spot there or like the fear receptors aren't as strong in some way, because as I hear you saying, it, I'm like, yes. And there have been so many other friends of mine who are in the entrepreneurial space and, and have a very different discipline than me. But there is that thing of like, well, what else was I going to do? And it's, it's really <laughs> interesting. Maybe maybe it's a little bit of narcissism. Who knows? Somebody listening might diagnose me with something. But to your point, I was just like, we're, we're missing a huge piece of this puzzle here. We have to do something. And I'd been in nonprofits and academia, and I saw the pace there was something that I couldn't tolerate. The bigger an organization gets, of course, it can do potentially have a bigger reach, but it also means the pace of things is much, much slower. And Mm -hmm. I can see the good work being done. And I could also be like, well, if I want to do this in those industries, it's going to be a 15 to 20 year process. And I just couldn't, (laughs) I, I could not wait that long. I mean, longevity is a big factor here because like the types of projects that people 
are willing to take on has a lot to do with, you know, can I move the needle within my Mm -hmm. short time on this planet? You know, can I actually move things and and shake things up into a place where I'd actually like to see them? And and I love that you voted with your feet and actually made that happen because, and I'm sure your clients love it as well, because like, this is something that's so desperately needed and talk about great timing. I mean, heading into a pandemic, just from a business perspective, I'm sad to observe the trend, but it happens to be, I'm sure quite good for your business that like Mm -hmm. anxiety and these types of, you know, mental ailments and uh, in addition, financial uncertainty now that we're potentially, you know, heading into looming recession fears and things like that. This is the right tool for the job, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, what, you, what you're bringing to market is a service that's more necessary now than ever, perhaps. And so mm-hmm. how does it feel to be on the crest of a wave that is so desperately needed right now? To your point, to be on the crest of a wave of things, of a service that's so needed, my hope is that there will be more of me. Right now, I don't have anybody else in Michigan that I can refer clients to do. It is awful Mm -hmm. to tell people, my wait list is over 200 people. I can do other things and I'm doing other things, but it is very different. There is something very beneficial about doing general education on a topic and creating awareness for folks. And it's another thing to say, now that you have the awareness, where do you go? So, So my hope is that because I am thankfully connected to various alumni associations and various training programs, my hope is that they can kind of take on that labor of making sure that their students are getting training in the fields of social work, psychology, and counseling. When I was in school, it's no no shade to my alma mater. Nobody else was talking about it. We did not talk about money at all. And we talked mm. about a lot of really hard, intense things, as I'm sure you can imagine. So my hope is that I'm well enough aware that I cannot serve everybody. And my hope is that because I'm comfortable being a bit more in the limelight and making mistakes publicly and being a bit loud with the work that I do, that somebody out there is going to go, ooh, we should probably make sure our students are getting training on this and opening up that dialogue and conversation to have more people well-equipped to have these conversations with their clients and make sure that other people in adjacent disciplines get the training that they need to do this type of work. And, And when I say that, I also understand that not everybody needs therapy, but I also think it's important for people in the financial planning fields just to have a baseline understanding of the way that money impacts our mental health and vice versa. Doing those things and exposing yourself to those things is really beneficial, even if you don't go and become a therapist. I mean, it's such an interesting space because, again, with the word intentionality, I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but the first order kind of like caveman response to well, Lindsay, your your waitlist is 200 people long and you're working two days a week on this. Like, there seems to be a solution here. That's obviously missing these second order and tertiary sort of effects where it's just like, look, it might be good for the next 50 people on the waitlist, but if Lindsay burns herself out, then guess what? Michigan's like flying blind, <laughs> you know, like, or that type of operation where it's, it's like, I love that you've brought in like, listen, I hope that I have competition that's coming out of these schools. I hope that we have more people that can, that can solve this problem because you've made it clear that it's the type of thing that you need to be at your best in order to do it best. Mm -hmm. And you know what it takes for you to be at your best. And I love that you've been so effective at drawing those lines Mm -hmm. uh, where other people would just run themselves ragged and wind up being a hollow shell of themselves because 
this is what keeps you a sustainable engine continuing to help people. And so anyways, just wanted to echo that as, as encouragement. Like I, I think it's really, it's really great to know, know your limits and also to think about things in the big picture, because what you are doing being this voice, you know, on behalf of financial therapy into the wider ether of the internet or, or wherever it may be. And, and as a speaker and, and all these things, I watched a TED Talk recently that was about how it was ridiculous that we hold charities to this standard that no one would ever think about holding a business to, which is that like, oh, no, if, if your money's going towards advertising, then I don't want to contribute to that. When it could be the case that spending $100 on advertising could bring in $1,000. And so then it's mm -hmm. just like, okay, well, if you want it for the, the charitable cause to succeed, then clearly advertising is a big part of that. It struck me because I was like, wow. I had never thought of like, I'm a pretty sensible guy. And I'd never thought of it like that. Like I've, I'd always kind of looked at it with more of this kind of scroogey, you know, like, oh, well, it's just going to go to advertising anyway, you know, like that type of thing. And then I realized like, it's, it's just not a fair criterion to hold people to. And I know that might seem like a strained analogy, but you know, the dollars in this case, to me, those are the hours of your time. That's like what you need to do in order to move the ball forward for as many people as possible, which I can tell this is something that you're wildly passionate about. <laughs> it's inspiring. I, I love meeting people who are like that. It's basically the type of thing where I know it matters so much to you that you have thought this through to a T and you're continually receptive to, you know, these these new nudges and influences that are like, huh, I guess we should tweak things here or there. And but above all, keep the engine running. Like mm. that's that's a very wise, in my opinion, way to approach it. Thank you. It's really humbling hearing that reflected back. And I think because I experienced that burnout and sickness so early in my career, I realized to your point that I could see five days a week of clients, but I wouldn't be a very impactful therapist. Mm -hmm. And my hope in consolidating these days is, again, as I said, to do more work on the realm of education. But yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate hearing that reflected back. No, of course. I mean, it's something that runs across, you know, entrepreneurship in a lot of ways from the standpoint that people who are firsts of anything oftentimes have to kind of create their own playbook. And mm -hmm. so you have to have the courage as you do to create your own rules and, and hold yourself to them. And I think that's, um, it's something that takes a lot of a lot of self-awareness. And so I, I know we're running up on a lot of time here. I want to want to make sure that we take the opportunity to just to ask you like one final question, which is mm -hmm. how would you recommend, you know, given all the hats you wear as as a thought leader, as a financial therapist, as a thinker, as a, you know, a consultant coach, all of these things. I'm curious how you would advise somebody who's thinking about crafting a life for themselves. Any things that you wish you would have known as you were embarking on that journey for yourself? Oh, it's such a good question. The the what do you wish you would have known? Because I think a lot of the times, depending on where we're at and our our stage of life or our stage of readiness, I could have had a lot more information about how to shape my day or potentially having gone into private practice earlier or been a better advocate for my own financial and emotional needs. And I think sometimes there is that benefit of, of lived experience. And I think for me, that lived experience helps me to uphold these self-care boundaries, helps me to be intentional about my schedule and about who I see and who is not a good fit and et cetera. So sometimes that information is like, it's almost more validating after the fact, whereas yes, mm. information is powerful. And sometimes you have to be at a stage in your life to be accepting of it. 
I don't know if that's a good answer, but it's what's coming no, up. I mean, what I'm hearing is when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so to me, <laughs> to, yeah, to, sure, sure. to me, the, <laughs> let me know if I've mistaken it, but like no, that, that to me, <laughs> it sounds like what I'm drawing from your experience is, is you want to, you want to keep your head on a swivel and make sure that you're responding and responsive to mm-hmm. new information that comes in, whether it's in the form of ones and zeros or whether it's in the form of like, dude, I don't feel so good. You know, I'm getting right. sick. I'm doing, I'm right. running myself to the bone here. Right. How am I going to keep this going? And so anyways, I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to the next time we get to connect. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation for me as well. And, and thanks again for the invite.